begin with a question for you this morning. Are you glad to go to the house of the Lord? Are you glad to get up and come to church? When your alarm goes off in the morning and it's raining outside and you've got to get some kids here early to sing in the particularly cute children's choir, are you still glad to go to the house of the Lord on those mornings? When things are going difficult in your life, when you have perhaps conflict with friends, when there's maybe even struggle or conflict with people at church, are you still at that moment glad to go to the house of the Lord? And I hope the answer for you is yes. I know there's some weeks when maybe you, you don't want to go. Some weeks you're dealing with doubt or discouragement in your life and you maybe would rather not go to church and those are the weeks where you make yourself go anyway. And I mean, don't you just know it that every time you make yourself go to church you feel built up in the Lord and encouraged by his word? And that's why this psalm begins with a declaration. I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. I mean, you can tell a lot about a person by their attitude towards going to church. Maybe you've had this encounter with one of your neighbors where you, you meet them and you're talking to them for the first time and they find out you're a Christian and you can almost see it on their face. They're saying by their face, don't invite me to church. Don't invite me to church. Don't invite me to church. And you say, hey, you should go to church with us sometimes. And they say, oh, they did it. Are you glad to go to the house of the Lord? You know, we live in a time where we go to the, the house of the Lord. We go to, to worship in church every week. Some of us make a five-minute drive. Some of you make like a 20-minute drive or something crazy from a place like Woodbridge or somewhere. 20 minutes. You've got to put a DVD in for the kids. It's a far away, that Woodbridge place is. And still, are you glad to go to the house of the Lord? You know, this verse is written not about going once a, once a week to church. This verse was written about going three times a year, if able. Passover, Pentecost, Feast of the, of the Booze, which is spring, summer, fall. Some people would have to travel weeks to get there. Some people are going from the opposite side of the Black Sea. Some people are going to the far, from the far-flung parts of the Arabian Desert. They're walking. It could, take, it could take up to two weeks from some of those places to walk all the way to Jerusalem. And by the way, this is a world without minivans, without DVDs, without Google Maps, without AAA, and without McDonald's. It's a world without deadbolts. It's a world without ring on your doorknob, with no security system. So you pack up your family, you load them all together, and you walk for weeks to Jerusalem, and you hope that when you get back, your house is still there. Oh yeah, also, your business is not making any money. Hopefully wolves didn't eat your sheep. Hopefully you don't get ambushed on the way. This is a dangerous, dangerous journey. Hopefully you don't fall among robbers. Hopefully you don't get ambushed and hopefully your stuff doesn't get stolen when you're gone. That's this journey. So now imagine the person who's working in the field, sweating under the sun, but at least his house is right there. His family is right there. His world is right there out, up on the other side of the Black Sea. Or imagine the, the sheep herder down on the, the very fringes of the Arabian desert just trying to make a meager living down there. And a group of Jewish pilgrims come by and say, hey, you should walk with us for a few weeks to Jerusalem. At that point, are you going to say, I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. 
That's what this verse is describing. And did I mention, by the way, that in the exile, when these psalms were sung, in the 400 years of exile, as they were going to Jerusalem three times a year, that the temple, for some of it, was in ruins, that it had been destroyed, and then when it had been rebuilt, it was small and meager, that there was no king in Israel. There were no, uh, in a sense, prophets in Israel. There was no word of God coming from Jerusalem. There was no descendant of David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem and still they went and still they went and still they went time after time after time going to the house of the Lord. And they begin with this declaration. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. The temple was in Jerusalem, of course. Jerusalem is the center of this. It's the theme of this uh, little short psalm, Psalm 122. Jerusalem is mentioned several times. You see this in verse 2. Our feet have been within your gates, O Jerusalem. Verse 3, Jerusalem was built as a city held firmly together. Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. This is a psalm that is about going to Jerusalem. You need to appreciate that there is no other city like Jerusalem. Headquarters of, you know, focal point in the sense of both Islam and Judaism and Christianity with the Dome of the Rock there in Islam and, of course, the Temple Mount there and the Wailing Wall in Judaism, the place where Christ comes from in Christianity. Draw a 900-mile circle, 900-mile radius around Jerusalem. This is a small portion of the earth's surface, a small portion of the landmass of the world. But inside of that, you encompass Athens, Istanbul, Antioch, Beirut, Damascus, Baghdad, Jerusalem, Alexandria, Cairo, and Mecca. So much of Western civilization, culture, religion comes from that tiny place. Maps often have Israel in the center. For many years, it was called the, the kind of the navel of the, the world. It was considered the, the, the bowl of civilization, that Mediterranean basin. This is where that comes from. Jerusalem, when it's introduced in the Bible, there's 465 Old Testament prophecies that will take place or be fulfilled in Jerusalem, about Jerusalem, 465. In the New Testament, there's another 24 prophecies about Jerusalem. Many of those, almost 500 prophecies, have already been fulfilled, but some will be fulfilled in the future. Taken all together, the Jerusalem is mentioned 800 times in the Bible. This is no mean city. That's why the psalm has such a, a powerful impact. Jerusalem means literally city of peace. Salem is how it was pronounced back in Genesis when you encounter Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem. Remember, he was going to war against the king of Sodom. This is a battle of, of good versus evil. Righteousness versus, versus sin. And the king of Salem prevails. Over time, the, the Hebrew letter scene shifted to a sheen. And now you, you don't say Salem, you say Shalom. This is that word. The city of peace, the city of Shalom. And this was one of the psalms they would sing as they were walking and walking and walking every year to Jerusalem. It's a pilgrimage psalm, and so I want to look at it this morning. I want to give us an outline for it as we go through our own pilgrimage to Jerusalem in this psalm. I want to look at Jerusalem's past, Jerusalem's present, and Jerusalem's future. It's past, present, and future. And you'll notice that last week we had a similar outline. We looked at the past, future, and present of the, the topic of that psalm. 
And you think, why, why the similar outlines? Because a pilgrimage psalm lends itself to that kind of reflection. A pilgrimage psalm lends itself to thinking about where you're going and that you've been there before. And you see this even in verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to Yahweh's house. So he's excited about making the walk to Jerusalem. But then notice verse 2. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. So he says, I was glad when they said, let's go. I've already been there many times. You understand this? If your family has any rituals or traditions like summer vacations maybe you always go to the outer banks in the summer and your kids say i was glad when mom said let's go to the outer banks why were you glad because we've been there many times even on the car ride are we going to do the same things we did last summer yes are we going to stay in the same kind of place yes there's an excitement because about what you've done there before are we going to do new things also yes and you think what is it going to be like when your kids go on vacation there it's, it's natural to think that kind of thing with these kind of rituals what it was like before what it like now and what's it going to be like in the future and so it is with this pilgrimage psalm to jerusalem our feet have already been standing within your gates of jerusalem let's begin by looking at jerusalem's past verse two as i mentioned is nostalgic it wants you to go back into time. It wants you to think about where Jerusalem came from. As I mentioned, you are introduced to it with Melchizedek, the king of Salem. But it's not called Jerusalem. It's not called a city at this point. Not until the book of Joshua do you encounter it as a city. And then it's not obviously a Jewish city. Abraham and the patriarchs left Israel. The patriarchs go to Egypt. The Israelites are led in deliverance out of Egypt by Moses. They cross the Red Sea. They go through the wilderness wanderings. They're going to cross back into Israel. They cross the Jordan River in between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee right at Jericho. They cross the Jordan River. They march around Jericho. The walls fall. They conquer their first city. From there, they're supposed to spread out. They're supposed to go north up towards the Sea of Galilee. They're supposed to go uh, west down towards the Mediterranean Basin. They're supposed to go south down towards the Dead Sea, and they're supposed to move in these 12 tribes and take their land. And what are they going to find? It's, there's people that live there and don't want to welcome the Israelites. The first, one of the first groups of people we encounter are those that live in Jerusalem. They're ruled by a king, Adonai Zedek, which means Lord Zedek. He's the one who rules over Jerusalem. Jerusalem is up in the mountains, by the way. It's in a bowl up in the mountains. So you have to walk up to it, and then it's enclosed, it's encircled. This king hears about the fall of Jericho. He knows the Jews are on the march. So he actually, he goes south and he goes down to Lachish and some, you know, through modern day Bethlehem and then Lachish. And he makes up a, a treaty with these five kings and makes an alliance. And these five kings get their five armies and they're going to go ambush the Israelites. The Israelites hear about this and they take their own shortcut and they get Jerusalem from the, the other side. They conquer Jerusalem and they chase down Adonai Zedek and the five kings and their armies and conquer them. This is the battle, you know, in Judge, uh, Joshua chapter 9 where Joshua prays that the sun would stand still. This is that battle. He wants the sun to stand still in the sky so they can conquer Jerusalem. And then when God stops the rotation of the earth and keeps all the trees from flying off and, you know, violates all the laws of physics, but they work for God. You know, God doesn't work for them. They work for him. <laughs> God keeps the world together, prolongs the day, and Joshua wins his battle. It goes into night. Joshua wants the moon to stand still, to, to illumine them so they can keep pillaging and keep up their victory. And so God grants that request. The moon stands still, just like the sun stood still, and they defeat Jerusalem. But then they forget one thing. They forget to actually move in. <laughs> they conquer Jerusalem, and they go about their business of conquering Israel, but they don't actually occupy it. And so the years go by. When the book of Judges begins, 
Joshua is gone and Israel, Jerusalem has fallen back into enemy hands. They have to go fight it again. And this time the Israelites defeat Jerusalem and they burn it to the ground. And they forget to move in. <laughs> and so it falls back. This time the Jebusites move in and they make it their own city. And again, this is strategically located. It's in the, the middle of the, the connection between Europe and Asia and Africa. Those three continents come together right in Jerusalem. There's two different ways to get from Africa up into Asia and Europe. There's two different highways, one along the Jordan River, one along the Mediterranean Sea. Jerusalem's in between both of them. If you weren't looking for Jerusalem, you wouldn't find it. It's protected up there in the mountains in a perfect position to go down to those two highways, though. And now the Jebusites live in it. Remember when, I mean, it's a pagan city. Even later in the book of Judges, this might interest you, that there was a Levite and his concubine, which is not okay, but that's Israel in the days of the Judges. <laughs> They're traveling through Israel, and it gets nighttime, and it's a dangerous place to be outside of Jerusalem. It's just, it's nothing out there. There's no trees out there. It's just rolling hills. It's perfect for thieves and bandits to hide in, and the Levite is nervous about this, and his concubine is nervous about this, and the closest city is Jerusalem. And they say, let's go to Jerusalem to spend the night. But the Levite says, no, I don't want to go live with a bunch of pagans. Let's go find a city of Jews and go there for the night. And it doesn't go well. If you remember the story, they go to Gibeah. The concubine is attacked and violated and murdered. This leads Israel to a civil war where they almost wipe out one of their tribes. They almost destroy the tribe of Benjamin because Jerusalem was inhabited by the heathen, so to speak. The Israelites, in reality, were worse than they were. When David defeats Goliath, remember he puts Goliath's armor and his sword up on the wall in Bethshan. Remember what he does with Goliath's head? He cuts off Goliath's head and takes it to Jerusalem and drops it off in Jerusalem. That's like the ultimate mic drop right there. It's a warning to the Jebusites in Jerusalem. Hey, don't mess with the Jews. Don't mess with us. You want to know what happens to people who mess with us? Here's a giant's head, thunk. It wouldn't be till David became king, I think the sixth or seventh year of his reign as king, where he was finally able to conquer Jerusalem. And David did not make the same mistake that Joshua and Caleb had made. David moved in. And the Lord told David that I'm going to make this city special. I'm going to put my name on this place unlike any other place in the world. That's recorded in 2 Kings 21 verse 7, which is long after David is gone. Solomon is gone by 2 Kings 21. But the prophet's letting you know this was told to David way back earlier on. Yahweh said to David, 2 Kings 21 7, in this house in Jerusalem, in which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name there forever. David, when he conquered Jerusalem, he made it their capital. And to appreciate that, think of America's history. When we became a nation, we needed a capital. The southern states didn't want it in the north. The northern states didn't want it in the south. And so it fell to Congress and then George Washington to find a place where it wasn't in the north or the south. <laughs> make a new city there. Just don't make it in the north or the south. And they nestle it right on the border there. David had the same dynamic. He comes to authority. He couldn't put the capital in any of the 12 tribes that were already there. He needed a new place. A city that this far didn't fall under the authority of one of the 12 tribes since he chose Jerusalem, which was in the land that Judah should have possessed, but the Israelites had not moved into it yet. And he makes that the capital. That will be the place. But then something interesting happens. Notice just in verse one again, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of Yahweh. Let's go to the house of the Lord. 
Notice in the inscription, who wrote this psalm? David wrote this psalm. Did David ever see the temple? No. The house of the Lord didn't exist in David's life. There was the tabernacle, but there was no temple. And David wanted to build one too. David thought, you know, the Lord is homeless. I've got a nice house. I've got a nice palace. But there's no, there's no temple for the Lord and for his ark to dwell in. He even tried to move the ark into Jerusalem. That did not go well, remember? Uzzah struck dead. David quits. David's like, nobody can work for you, God. I'm done with this. It was anything but I was glad to go to the house of the Lord. <laughs> then David asked the prophet, asked Nathan, I want to build God a house so that God has a place to dwell in. And Nathan says, yes, great idea. Start tomorrow, David. And Nathan goes away and God stops the prophet Nathan and says, hey, next time pray first, okay, prophet? Next time check with me if I want a house. <laughs> the Lord doesn't live in a temple made by human hands. He's not homeless. So Nathan had to march back to David. Talk about an awkward conversation. Nathan had to go back to David and say, uh, earlier I said God said build the temple. I didn't actually check with him. Never mind. Cancel those plans. Shoo out the architects. It's over. You're not going to build it. You're a man of bloodshed, Nathan tells him. Your son will build the temple, but you won't. And so David died without seeing the temple. And yet he wrote this psalm prophetically about the day where the temple would exist, prophetically about the day when the Jews would go three times a year, as it says in verse four, it was decreed for Israel to go there over and over and over again. I mean, what a special city this is. Look at verse three. Jerusalem is built as a city that is bound firmly together. That's somewhat its geography. It's surrounded by the hills up there in the mountains. It's bound firmly together. And, you know, if, if you've been to Jerusalem, you've had this experience. There's nothing. You're driving through the hills. There is nothing there. There's not even green bushes there. There's just desert. Rolling hills of desert. And you round the corner and you, now you go through a tunnel. You come out the other side of the tunnel and boom, there's Jerusalem. The dome of the rock, the gold of it shining in the, in the distance. And it's just incredible. Out of nowhere, it strikes you. It's protected. It's nestled in there. And the tribes will go up there, it says in verse 4. The tribes of Yahweh. Notice the, the progression here. These tribes, these far flung, the 12 tribes that are far flung. And eventually, they'll be in exile. There are people from all over the world, but they're bound together in Jerusalem. They're tied there. They have a common language there, a common Lord there, a common temple there. This is their focal point. They have such hope for Jerusalem. I mean, it is an ethnically diverse city. Today, it's an ethnically diverse city. Even back then, as the, the diaspora, as the Jews were sent into exile, they begin marrying off in exile. And, you know, it's a very ethnic. When Dieter and I went to Jerusalem, we had a, a group that we brought with us and we had several Spanish speakers in our group from our church in Los Angeles and we were nervous, are they going to be able to understand the tour guide and who speaks, you know, English with kind of a Hebrew accent, what's that going to be like? And then we get there and we have a Spanish-speaking tour guide. She was a Sephardic Jew from Spain. Talk about the providence of God. But that's what Jerusalem is like. The Jews that live there are from all over the world. The, the police force that was guarding the, the Temple Mount the day we were there were all from Yemen, Hebrew-speaking Yemenites. <laughs> That's the nature of Jerusalem. And it was this way even during the exile. People from all over the world, they don't have the same skin color, they don't live on the same continent, but they're bound together tightly. They're the tribes, but they belong to Yahweh and they're tied together by this temple. Now what is it about them that tied it together? 
We see this in verse 4. It was decreed for Israel. This is the prophetic word of God. The prophetic voice of God comes through Jerusalem. The prophets spoke about Jerusalem. God's tying his redemptive plan and the prophetic voice to Jerusalem. It was decreed for them from Jerusalem to give thanks to Yahweh's name from Jerusalem. That's the priestly ministry. Enabled, in order for you to worship, you had to go up to the temple. Your sacrifices had to be given. The priestly function happened in Jerusalem. The thrones in verse 5 were judgment, were set in Jerusalem. So you have your prophets, your priests, your kings, all functioning in Jerusalem. You know, in the United States, we have our three branches of government. Legislative, executive, judicial, and they're supposed to be checks and balances. You remember that day when there were checks and balances, the good old days? They checked each other. Yeah. Tell your kids about it one day. In Israel, it's the same thing. You had your prophets, your priests, and your kings, and they checked each other. The the king, for example, couldn't be a priest. They were different people. And if the king acted like a priest, God struck him. And you see all three of them functioning here in Jerusalem. The king would reign in Jerusalem. Even when Israel revolted when the civil war happened after Solomon's death and 10 tribes left. They built their own capital, Samaria. The Savior doesn't come through Samaria. The high priest isn't in Samaria. The prophets barely name it. The focus is always Jerusalem. Even after the civil war, after the exile, after Israel's taken into captivity, then the temple is destroyed. The exiles didn't do pilgrimages back to Samaria. They came back to Jerusalem. That's where the worship happens. That's where the Savior will come from. And you get a hint of that even in verse 5. Thrones, plural, of judgment were set. Thrones of the house of David. Thrones, plural. In other words, the Savior will be David's son, David's descendant, but many, many descendants later. David's writing this. He understands this. His Savior, the Savior is coming later. There's going to be lots of thrones later. And the Savior will come. The priestly worship will happen there. The prophetic voice will be from there. The king will be from there. And then when the psalm was gathered by Ezra for those in exile to come back on their pilgrimages, this is 400 years after David, think about what had happened in those 400 years. The temple's gone. When when they were doing these pilgrimages back to Jerusalem, there is no temple anymore. It was destroyed. There's no king in Jerusalem during these these pilgrimages. Who's the king? Cyrus, the Persian, Alexander the Great, Caesar in Rome. They're the ones who are ruling over Jerusalem. There's no prophets during this time. It's 400 years of silence. There's no prophets. There's no king. And still, even though the kings went the way of the Nephilim, still, The Jews went on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It's not that they loved the geography. It's that the kingly and the priestly and the prophetic ministries are co-located in that one place. Think of Daniel in Babylon. And the Persian king says, you can't pray to anybody, Daniel chapter 6, except me. And Daniel marches right up to his bay window, flings open the doors, And praise to Yahweh by facing where? Jerusalem. What a bold sign. 
What a bold sign of Daniel's character and his integrity and his faithfulness that though the law says don't pray to Yahweh, he will obviously pray to Yahweh. He'll set his face towards Jerusalem and pray to Yahweh. But on the other hand, isn't it also a little bit sad? What's Jerusalem like when Daniel's facing it? Where's the temple? It's gone. It's rubble. Who's living in Jerusalem? A bunch of riffraff. You remember the end of Jeremiah? These people couldn't follow any instructions. Jeremiah says, go to Egypt. They say, no. Jeremiah says, stay here. And they say, we're going to Egypt. <laughs> Let's murder the governor first. I mean, it's, it's a pathetic group of riffraff that's living in Jerusalem. There's no temple. There's no king. There's no prophet. There's no priest. And yet Daniel's hope is there. Daniel's looking there. He knows his hope is not in Babylon. And he's looking that way saying, if only the throne of David would be reestablished. If only there could be another priest, a high priest who could make peace between God and man. If only, if only, if only. And there's just a pile of rubble. And then when Cyrus says, go back and rebuild, they go back and they, they rebuild the Zerubbabel and Ezra go back and they rebuild the city and, Nehemiah, and they rebuild the temple and Nehemiah comes back and tries to defend the place and rebuilds a wall and Haggai is there and he's dedicating the new temple they're building and it's just, it's, the temple is so sad. Remember under Haggai, they all get around, the, they laid the foundation of the temple and they all gather around it and remember what they do? They weep. They weep. They say, this is it. This is what we go on pilgrimages to, This? It's so sad. You can almost feel the hope leaving the scriptures. Isaiah 2 verse 3. Many people will come and say, come, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us go to Yahweh's house, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he can teach us and that we can walk in his paths. For out of Zion will come the law. And the word of Yahweh will go forth again from Jerusalem. Think about what Isaiah is writing about. This is long after the Torah has come. He's not saying out of Jerusalem will come the Torah when he says the law. He's saying there's going to be something new will happen there. There's got to be something else. There's got to be a new law that comes. There's got to be a savior that comes and goes to the world from Jerusalem. When you see the hope mingled with the despair now you get what David means when he says, I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. That's the past. Let's talk about Jerusalem as present. It's present. You know, we don't go on pilgrimages to Jerusalem. We don't. We go as, we go to, some of you should go to Jerusalem. It's, it's fun to go see, and it's fun to see some of the, the ruins that have been uncovered and, you know, Hezekiah's tunnel and the temple steps where Solomon, I mean, where uh, Peter preached from. I and mean, there's neat things to see there. But it's not a religious pilgrimage to go there. You know, we're not the religion that has five pillars, one of which is a pilgrimage to the Middle East. <laughs> Going to Israel, it'll help you appreciate things more, but it won't make you more spiritual. It won't make you a better Christian. Not going to happen. What changed? How come the Old Covenant was so wrapped up around these pilgrimages to Israel, but we don't do that? What's different? And in this sense, you have to appreciate who Jesus was as the, the final pilgrim. And of course, Jesus went on his pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Remember, he was left behind at one, and I mentioned this last week. Don't make fun of his family for leaving him behind in Jerusalem. You know, which of you have not left a kid behind at church, you know? Maybe some of you, but most of you. 
But later on in Jesus' life, he started his ministry. He goes to the temple. He clears it out, turns over the tables, chases out the money changers. And of course, the Pharisees lose their minds about this. They're, they're freaking out about it. And Jesus says, hey, you can tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it again in three days. And they say, you're out of your mind. It took forever to build this place. I mean, thinking about the amount of time even between Haggai and when Herod made it bigger, we're talking 400 years. And Jesus says, I'll build it in three days. And then John gives you a little aside in John chapter two. John says, they thought he was talking about the actual temple of the bricks. Ha, 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 ha. He's talking about his body. And then he comes into Jerusalem again three years later, cleans out the temple again. But remember how he entered into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and they laid their coats down before him and the palm branches before him and they declared that this is the king. Here is the one who sits on the throne of David. Here is David's king. Here is David's son. He's coming to the throne. And he comes into Jerusalem. And this ends the pilgrimages. This ends the hope that one day the son of David and the, da the Lord of David will reign upon David's throne. This ends with Jesus. He is that one. And before he was crucified, he's looking at the temple mount. He's looking at the, the beautiful gold of the temple. And he sees the widow come in and plunk in her last coin. What a sad symbol that is. This woman who has nothing to live on. She's going to go home and die. Gives her last penny hoping that it can somehow buy her favor with God. And Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth. This place is going down. This is not redeemable. This is a religion that has become built up with this ornate temple and this ornate gold off of the exploitation of widows. I'm telling you what, there's not going to be two stones that are connected here that are, are going to remain. It's going to be totally destroyed. And that's exactly what happened. They crucified Jesus. He resurrected. He told, he told the disciples, don't stay in Jerusalem. Get out of Jerusalem. Go to Judea. Go to Samaria. Go to the uttermost parts of the world. This is over. And then 70 AD, the Jews revolted against Rome and the Roman Tiberius general came in and destroyed the temple. Melted it down to take the gold out of it. Obliterated it. And if you go there today, that's what you'll see. You'll see the wall where it used to be, the mount upon which it used to stand with an Islamic mosque on the top. I mean, it's over. He is the temple. He is our true Jerusalem. He is where we go. He is who we look to for peace. We don't get peace from a future hope in Jerusalem. We get peace from the king who already came. What Jerusalem was in the Old Testament, the church is in the New Covenant. You know, there are many people who take Psalm 122 and say this is a psalm that teaches that we should be politically allied with Israel. The friends of Israel, you know, this says our country needs to be friends with Israel. You know, and that, I think it's a, that's a valid foreign policy. Israel stands for democracy and freedom and, you know, things like letting women drive and giving them rights kind of thing. And so it makes sense that if we're going to have an ally in the Middle East, it should be them. But not from this psalm. The psalm is not about political alliances in a geopolitical sense. It's not saying that Christians have a duty to stand with Israel. That's not what this is about. This psalm is telling you 
that when you gather for worship, you're coming to the house of the Lord. The body of Jesus Christ is more real and more ever-present than the temple in Jerusalem. Where there are two or more who love the Lord, there he is with us. In the old covenant, Jerusalem was a visible symbol of the unity of God's covenant people. In the New Testament, the visible symbol of the unity of God's covenant people is the church. In the Old Testament, Israel was a cosmopolitan, ethnically diverse area united by their faith in the future Savior. In the New Testament, the church is that group. We are the ethnically diverse people scattered around the world, tied together by our faith in Jesus Christ. What's the love that binds us together? It's the truth about Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said, our Jerusalem is the church and our temple is the Christ. Wherever Christ is preached and baptism and communion are rightly administered, there we are sure God dwells. There will be our temple. There will be our tabernacle. There will be our cherubim. There will be our mercy seat. For there God is present with us by the power of his word. What do you do with verse six? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I mean, you want to pray for peace in places in the world? You can pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You should pray for peace in Chicago. You should pray for peace in the world, of course, because who is the one who brings peace? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king of peace. He is, the, in that sense, the true Melchizedek. He is the prince of peace. He is the Lord of righteousness. There is no peace apart from him. That's why verse 8 only makes sense. If you take this as Jerusalem, verse 8 doesn't work. But if you see this as the church, verse 8, for my brothers and my companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. You cannot look at a bunch of people that don't recognize Jesus Christ as a Savior and say, shalom, peace be upon you. There is no peace apart from faith in Jesus Christ. He alone is the Lord of peace. He alone is the God of peace. As what Paul says in Romans 15, that Jesus is the God of peace. So it's fitting that our gathering of peace would be emblematic of citizens of the king of peace. We are brothers and sisters, very common New Testament word. We are Adelphoi, brothers and sisters with those who have a common faith in Jesus Christ. That's what verse eight is referenced to. We are brothers and companions with our fellow pilgrims, not to a Jerusalem in this world, but to a Jerusalem from heaven. They had such faith that the priest would come from Jerusalem, such faith that the king would reign in Jerusalem, such faith that the prophet would come from Jerusalem, and all of that happens in Jesus Christ. He ripped the veil from top to bottom. When he went up to that cross, he bore our sins in his body. He becomes our high priest, offering up our worship to God, and to drive the point home, the temple veil rips What are you going to go to Jerusalem for? What Christ has already done. I know this might strike some of you as novel and new, but I can prove that you really believe this in your heart. Because when I started this morning's sermon, I asked you a question. Are you glad to go to the house of the Lord? And none of you thought I was inviting you to go on a trip to Jerusalem. We sing about this all the time. We sing, and we'll sing the song today at the end of our service. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, 
The church our blessed Redeemer saved with his own precious blood. I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand. Dear as the apple of thine eye, engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall. For her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given. Till toils and cares shall end. Let's talk about the future of Jerusalem. And time gets away so fast. The sermon just grows, all three services. It keeps growing. (laughs) Jerusalem is a special place in God's prophetic plan. As I mentioned, many prophecies about Jerusalem, they're not all completed. The next thing that will happen in Jerusalem, there will be the temple rebuilt. There will be a new temple that is built there. The Antichrist will make peace in the world from there. He will make peace between the East and the West. He'll bring the different false religions together between, I think, Catholicism and Islam. It seems to be the the idea that they're brought together with the covenant of peace. Even the, the materialistic, atheistic people in the world will sign this peace agreement, bringing peace to the world. This is the first horse in the book of Revelation, the false promise of peace. And people will believe it and will last for a moment. And then the peace will be broken and the wars will break out. This is the abomination of desolation. He will sign that peace agreement from the temple. He will take up his seat in the temple as if he were the savior. He will have a religious leader and an authority with him that he will delegate some of his authority to. The two of them prop each other up and they will rule over the world for a short period of time. This is a horrible time. And Jesus says it's the abomination of desolation. It's worse than anything that has ever happened in the world before. Daniel saw a prophecy of it in Daniel 7 and said this is the worst thing that has ever happened. It's worse than before the flood. And then God destroyed the world by drowning it. That's what happens next in Jerusalem. Then the war breaks out. The nations turn against the Antichrist. They corner him. At this moment, Jesus will return to Jerusalem. He will plant his foot on the Mount of Olives, dividing it in half. This is described in Micah chapter 4, verse 1, in the book of Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. A great battle will take place then. The Israelites will begin being converted, not ethnically, not nationally, but individually. Every household, children, women, husbands, and it goes in that order, Zechariah says, to demonstrate that each person is being regenerated by God. They will look upon him whom they pierced. They will see the Savior who has returned. They will see his hands. They will see his feet. They will behold the Messiah and they will believe in him at that point. At that point, the scripture says, all Israel will be saved. And Jesus will set up shop in the temple. He will reign over the world from Mount Zion, from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And at the end of a thousand years, the nations will rebel again and Jesus will crush their rebellion, roll up this world like a scroll and then from the sky will descend our new Jerusalem, our eternal home, a city that he is making for us now. Described in Revelation 21 and 22, it will descend to earth and there we will dwell with the Lord forever. That is the Jerusalem we're going to go to. That's the Jerusalem where our citizenship is. That is the Jerusalem where the king of peace reigns as the governor. Hebrews 12. You haven't come to Mount Sinai and an earthly place of dwelling. You instead have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Notice that phrase, you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festival gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, 
to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled wor- blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out for vengeance. The blood of the old covenant cried out for sacrifice. The blood of Christ declares, forgive them, it is finished. As a well-known hymn says, glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion, city of our God, he whose word cannot be broken, formed thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages he founded. What can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou may smile at all your foes. That's the language of Psalm 122 brought to the church. So let me leave you with three questions. First, are you glad to go to church? Do you rejoice in meeting with God's people? Second, do you work for the good and for the peace of God's people? Do you work for the good of the church? I hope you don't come here as a spectator. I hope you take this psalm like we do all the psalms of ascent. We read all these psalms and we understand they were pilgrim songs, but we say this is how we, wor- this is how we worship. Do you take this psalm as a charge to you to work for the good of God's people? I hope you're not simply a spectator at church, but you actively serve and you advance the good of God's people. And thirdly, are you at peace with God? This is the most repeated word in the psalm. Peace, peace, peace. Are you at peace with God? It only comes through putting your faith in the King of peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we're thankful that you are the true prophet. You're the true priest. You're our eternal king. You are the true king of righteousness. Melchizedek points to you. You were the final pilgrim. You journeyed in and entered Jerusalem as its conquering king. You tore the veil. You predicted the temple's demise. And when the Antichrist rises up at the end times, you will return to put an end to it all. In the middle of all that, Lord, we know that you offer peace to us. You offer peace to those who are far. You offer peace to those who are aliens and exiles from your kingdom. You offer peace if they turn and come to you through faith in your death and resurrection. That is us. We're grateful that you bind us together in the church with fellowship and love, a familial tie that comes through faith in our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.